And let's be clear, we exist only as a Great Commission people. We exist in order that sinners will hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and believe and be saved from all the nations. The marching orders of the Church of Jesus Christ were to go into all the world and preach the gospel because the gospel has the power unto salvation. This is what it means to follow Christ. A call to live, a call to die, a call to spend your life for Jesus here and around the world until he returns. This is Amazon to the Himalayas podcast. I'm your host, Paul Aiken. The fourth phase of the missionary task, we're going to keep the conversation moving about the missionary task. The, the fourth component or fourth phase is healthy church formation, church planting. What does it look like? How do we go about establishing the church as the gospel advances around the world? Our guest today is Mark Collins. Mark is a pastor, a church planter who's been ministering in Asia for nearly 20 years. Mark and his family currently live in Singapore. He's married to Megan. They have six children, and he's originally from Northern Virginia. Mark and I have known each other for many years, and I've been grateful for his ministry, and I'm excited to have the conversation with him today. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Paul. It's a gift to be here. Why don't you start by just telling us some about your family? Yeah. So Megan and I were East Coast kids. I grew up in Virginia. She's from Pennsylvania, both converted in college through the ministry of some classmates, different places. She was at Penn State. I was at James Madison, but both felt a call to the mission field pretty much after graduating. She headed over to the Middle East to serve in Turkey for a couple of years, and I headed to China. We ended up meeting a couple of years later at a Gosh, it was like seminary classes for missionaries, a seminar and the writings of Jonathan Edwards. So I like to say that we fell in love over sinners in the hands of an angry God. <laughs> so got married and headed back to the mission field. So our kids have been, we have five biological and one adopted, but all kind of came about on the mission field there. Okay. So you mentioned that you you had spent some time in China. She had spent some time in Turkey. You guys Turkey, get yeah. you guys get married. And then you end up back in, in Asia. Tell us how that all played out. Well, we both didn't start off thinking that we would be career missionaries. I guess that's the way we should say it. I went to the mission field on a it was a six-week summer trip to do evangelism. And it was like, yes, Lord, I will give you six weeks of my life. That felt like about all I could do. Being in a place where the students, we were on campus doing evangelism and discipleship with, with students, they had never heard the gospel in any way, shape, or form. I mean, when I was there in the late 90s, let's say, most of the students that I met thought that Jesus was kind of a, a legendary figure like Buddha. Like they didn't even know he was a historical figure. As I'm trying to share with them, I'm just like, these guys don't know anything. How could I not come back, you know, after mm. that short-term initial trip and come for longer. So it happened incrementally from there. I was like, yes, Lord, okay, I will give you one year of my life for missions. So then one became two. And I feel like missions organizations are very good at just kind of making that next step possible. And that's wonderful because at some point I didn't want to leave. Just the ministry was fruitful and it's been a great place to serve. Mm, that's good. You know, Mark, one of the things I love about you is your love for the local church. 
your love for church planting. And so obviously talking about the missionary task, we've been talking with a variety of folks, thinking through what is it that missionaries do? How do they spend their time? And we've talked all the way up to, hey, you got to enter into a context. You share the gospel. You make disciples. Now we're, we want to talk today about what does it look like to plant the church? Why is church planting important or I would argue essential for missionary work? But I want to start with, in your opinion, what is a church? Maybe how do we succinctly define church? I don't know if this is what you want to explore, but I feel like truth in advertising, the first thing I should say is that my first many years on the field, I would not have been able to answer that question. I actually remember getting promoted to a a regional director. I was over 80 missionaries. And our leadership meetings, that question was the question that scared me the most. Because periodically, one of these would be like, hey, yeah, what is a church? In student ministry, we just share our faith, gather people together, do Bible studies. Anyway, being discipled in what is a church was so helpful to me. I define it as a gathering of believers covenanted together and are marked by the preaching of the word and by taking the Lord's Supper and and administering baptism. So baptism and the Lord's Supper. And those three kind of tiers for me, all essential. So gathering of believers, they actually understand the gospel. The covenanted together just comes from, you know, trying to think through the one and others of the New Testament and and how do you live out the commands that we find there if there isn't a self-conscious, yes, I'll do that for you and you do that for me. The language of a church covenant may not be there per se in the New Testament, but I just think it has to happen if this group of, you know, we were seeing many new Chinese believers in my first couple of years there. How do these people go, okay, yes, let's do this together. Let's do this Mm -hmm. thing. So that's the church covenant. And then you've got to have the right preaching of the word and then baptism in the Lord's Supper, or you just, you can't define the boundary and the border of of this group of people. So that's how I define it. That's good. That's helpful. Yeah. I think starting with kind of a clear understanding of the church, the next question kind of connected to that is, okay, you have people coming to faith. You're serving cross-culturally. Where do you start in attempting to plant a new church? The big question that defines how you approach this is, is there any existing church that you're operating out of? In our early days, the answer to that question was no, in part because of the security situation was much tighter. There was a lot of persecution going on around us. So even if there was a church around you already that you could go to, you wouldn't know about it. So as we were doing evangelism and seeing people come to faith, you know, we first couple of years, maybe we saw 15, 20 believers. Well, there was nowhere to send them. So we started a church. Now we didn't do it well. I didn't have much training at that point, quite honestly. But we knew that we had no other choice. Mm. So I would say if there is a church that you can even be sent out of locally that can help you in the process of starting that new church, that's made a huge difference. That's where we are now. So whenever we start new churches across the city, there's kind of an overseeing big brother, mother church that's helping the start of this new church. Okay. Yeah, that's good. That's helpful. Can you talk some about thinking through language in planting a church cross-culturally or, you know, maybe some of your thoughts on planting and establishing an English speaking church versus a native local language type church? Initially there's, you have to do it in the language that the people speak. (laughs) 
So the thought of planning an English speaking church was was not there initially for me. I mean, all of our first church plants were in Mandarin, but our security situation didn't allow my family to be a part of those churches. I mean, it just being a big nose as literally that's what they call me over there and people like me. It's GPS on their their location. So I couldn't go. So my family needed something to do for church. For many years, we just met with fellow missionaries. And actually, I don't think that was very healthy. I mean, there were reasons why we did that. We called it family time. You know, we would put in a Tim Keller, John Piper sermon, listen to it. We'd sing a few songs, we'd pray, and then we'd have discussion. It was fine. It helped us spiritually. I think we could have been going to, you know, an existing expatriate church that existed in town. We could have, we could have formally started our own. We didn't have that thought in the early days. So we're just seeing churches planted. But, you know, one of the things that I felt very acutely as I started training church leaders is that I, I didn't know what I was doing. I wasn't preaching regularly. I wasn't sitting in on elders meetings myself, but I'm training them how to do that. So thankfully, just with some good discipleship from supporting churches, they said, hey, why don't you start a church, start an English-speaking church? So we did that mainly for our own good. And then we're surprised to find out that it was a great boost to our, our missions ever. Like, give yourself to the bride of Christ and experience blessings. Who would have thought, you know, but, <laughs> but that's kind of how it unfolded for us. Okay. Yeah, that's helpful. I like the way you started with, hey, you know, in the beginning, you got to kind of start where the people are. So you're going to plant a church that is able to feed the souls of those people. And that's going to be in one particular language, but kind of in time, the way you kind of described it, it seems like things developed a little bit differently for you. And that's helpful. Kind of connected to what you just said there. So you obviously were helping plant churches. Then you started a church. You were pastoring a church. I'd love to hear you share some thoughts between, is there a distinction between, in your mind, pastor and church planter? Are those the same? The gifting, are they different? So that's kind of one. And then maybe kind of connected to that, do you see the Apostle Paul more as a pastor or church planter? Yeah, it's a good question. And I've run into that in the literature and, and different debates, but I've, I've always found it a bit strange. I mean, when I went out to, as a missionary, I was not an elder. I hadn't been an elder or a pastor in the, the churches that sent me out. I mean, I think they would have said that I was elder qualified or else they wouldn't have sent me, but it took some time before we planted churches that could then affirm me as an elder and recognize me as such. So I certainly think that it would be exceedingly strange in my mind for someone to say, I'm a church planter. I don't want to be an elder or a pastor of a church. I guess Paul, and that's why you bring it in as a second part of the question. I mean, that is the question is how would he have understood himself? I think that that would depend on how long he was in a particular spot, right? I mean, I kind of want to know what you think about that, but but I, I don't, he's a shepherd who is helping to establish churches. And then his particular calling does lead him on. I guess what I've run into that frustrates me is missionaries. I would say they're over-identifying with Paul and basically using him to say, "Whoa, I don't want to get too involved in that local church because that's not my calling. That just seems really weird to me. 
Yeah, no, I think I think you're right. I think you're onto something there. You know, you think about Paul's work in Corinth. Paul's work in Ephesus. He's in Ephesus for a while. He's charging those elders. We have that recorded in Acts Acts 20. So you think about the way that he's engaging with those elders and essentially explaining that he was, in a sense, I think we can say in a verb form, he was pastoring in that location, in that context. He was teaching God's word. He was shepherding people. He was meeting with the flock, these kinds of things. But but yeah, obviously he was moving on to new locations as well, but I don't think that he kind of saw it as I'm going to be here for the next 40 years, but I think he's thought, while I'm here for these year and a half, three years or whatever it is, I'm here, then I'm going to be giving myself to kind of pastoring and shepherding these people, but then raising up and appointing new leaders to carry the work forward, which kind of leads into the next question I want to ask is, how do you establish and appoint elders or leaders in a newly formed church? Can you describe some of that process for us? Are you thinking particularly the appointing or how do you raise up leaders who could become elders? Yeah, both. Yeah. I have good friends who have very kind of clear and strong elder pathways that they're trying to do. Mine's a bit more art than science. So step one for me is just get men doing ministry. So just give men an opportunity to teach formally, informally, ask them to pray in public, ask them to gather and lead the service. And kind of trellis in the vine style, you know, whisper to a guy you're working with, hey, do you see that new guy over there? Go get coffee with him and see what's going on with him spiritually. So just just trying to push all the men around me into ministry, and then the mileage is going to vary, right? Some guys grab onto that. They make the most of every opportunity, and you're like, well, give, give him some more. Some don't. So get men doing ministries, one. Watch them. You're watching for giftedness and character to rise up, both in your view and in what you hear other people saying about these men. And then I think there are practical things you can do, like inviting them to elders meetings. I think it's a great idea to just periodically invite people to young men to sit in an elders meeting, give their opinion, but listen, watch. So get men doing ministry, watch them. Number three, tell them you think they should be an elder. See how they respond. Then four, if that goes well, I would say the evaluation goes into maybe more of a formal degree where I would have guys read through historic Baptist statements of faith, like read all these and tell me anything you don't agree with or don't understand. Hmm. And then, so that's their doctrine. I'm trying to do some more scrutiny. And then their life, the big one that we always did is the elders would have an interview with the wife uh, if they're married and just talk to them, tell us what we don't know. And then number five is nominate them. So get them doing ministry, watch them, tell them you think it should be an elder, evaluate them, and then nominate them. Yeah, I love that. That's a really well, I think, thought out process. And I love the intentionality of early on just trying to grab and gather men together, push them into ministry, give them opportunities to jump in and lead. Reaching a specific people group with the gospel demands specialized training and a global vision. Southern Seminary supports these ministry goals through theological education that is trusted for truth. A degree in missiology from Southern Seminary provides students with the biblical foundation and theological training necessary to take the gospel into all the world. The program prepares graduates to serve as missionaries, church planters, and ministry leaders anywhere in the world. To learn more about Master of Divinity, Master of Arts and Doctoral Degrees available through the Billy Graham School at Southern Seminary, go to sbts.edu slash bgs 
or go to the episode notes for this podcast and click the link to the Billy Graham School at Southern Seminary. There you'll learn how listeners to this podcast can save $40 when applying for classes. The web address again is sbts.edu slash bgs. Connected to that, you know, this is a big question, I think, in in missiology today, but also it's a question that we know goes all the way back to the Apostle Paul. How soon can a new believer be raised up, positioned, appointed as an elder or pastor in the church? So in some ways, this is theoretical for you. This actually isn't theoretical because you've you've done this. You've seen young men come to faith. You have seen them discipled, and then you've seen them step into leadership roles. But from your perspective and your opinion, what does that timeline look like? Well, it's a prudential matter. I think that's the first thing to say. I, I don't think we should be trying to piece together the timeline of Paul's missionary journeys as if that will tell us in our particular situation how long before a, a guy is ready. And that, that's the way the debate usually goes. Like, oh, he was only in Thessalonica for three weeks. So, you know, three weeks. Well, okay. The, the number of details we don't know about the situation is just mind boggling. So this is extremely prudential, but I, I kind of give the same advice on this that I give to dating couples. Like, Watch the other person through four seasons. I'd like to see him, you know, spring, summer, fall, and winter. I don't know. Like, where did I come up with that? It's a bit arbitrary, but seems pretty good. You know, for context, we started a church with about 10 people within four years. So in our context, we can't go above 150, 200 people. It just happens to be the kind of space that we can secretly rent. It's commercial space, but we can't do a ballroom. We can do a small hotel meeting room, and then we we scatter when the place comes. But anyway, so we can only go to 150, 200, which meant after four years, we had to split. And then the second church, we call it church planting by peaceable division. That's our strategy. We just split geographically and keep going. So it was four years for the first one, then three years, then two years. So... We have to raise up elders in those time frame. That's just what was required. And that matched our sense of when these brothers were ready. So I know it doesn't make for good podcast or certainly a good book or whatever, but it's when they're ready, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I I really appreciate that response. Yeah. I, I think you're right. It's kind of a kind of a baseline. Hey, let's let's take almost an annual approach. But then kind of let's see from there. And obviously, yeah, each context, each situation is a bit unique. And I think even when you think back to Paul and you're thinking like, well, you know, day one, he could speak the language that the people could speak. There was a Judeo-Christian framework. I mean, there's just a lot of things that are going on. So each context is going to be a bit unique in that sense. But I think the way you laid it out there makes, makes a lot of sense. At what point does a church begin to look to plant another church? So you just described some of that. You talked about it in your situation, kind of by necessity, space constraints. In your opinion, are there, are there other factors, criteria you would put in that bucket as you think through, hey, we as a church believe we should be planting, starting other churches. How do you think through that? How long does that process take? What are some of the factors you look for in that? It's a really great question. As I was in the U.S. for a couple of years and then now in Singapore, what's become painfully obvious is that I don't know how to think through church planting in a free country. Because for us, church planting was driven by the necessity that was in front of us. 
people coming to faith. One of the things that helped us the most was an unwillingness to go multi-service or multi-site. And we face that temptation way more than churches in the West because we have such limited teachers. We have to chunk the church out in groups of 100, basically. Hmm. So our need for preachers is just insatiable. So, you know, the suggestion coming like, Mark, let's put you on Zoom and we can do, you know, so... Say no to that. That's the best thing that happened to keep us church planning because the necessity drives it. We've got to have more elders. We've got to send you guys out. And everybody on the team, everybody in the church knows we got to plant a church. Whereas where I am now in Singapore, it's quite difficult to think through. It's a small island. There are a lot of existing churches Maybe we don't need to plant. Maybe we need to revitalize. I mean, we we legitimately need to ask the question, is another church required here? You know, maybe we should give our money to church planters to go into Indonesia, which is right across the way, or Malaysia. Those are places that church plants are needed, but that's not going to be Grace Baptist Church here, you know, sending a chunk of our people to do it, probably. So complicated question. I guess I'm basically saying, I don't know. Yeah, I just know kind of how it worked for us where we were. Based off of your experience, I think the answer would be, when do you start looking to plan another church? Well, you start looking to do that when you need to do that. <laughs> yeah, and that's when, right. when circumstances you know bring that about, then you go full steam ahead and, and get another church planted based on either whether it's size constraints or geographic realities or whatever it is. So one thing that was super helpful for us is that we never got to the point financially where we could really support more than one and a half people. So basically a lead pastor, we're paying our pastor, and then we've got enough for like a pastoral assistant. And we may even need help from other churches to do that. But that pastoral assistant understands himself to be a church planner. So I do think it is really useful for churches, wherever you are, to basically create staff positions that are not meant to serve just this church forever, but we'd like to give this guy experience and pour into him. And then we'd like to him to go out somewhere. Now he may take some of our people and go across town and, and start where, or we may send him elsewhere, but that just seems like a great way to kind of financially prepare to be able to do the planting. Yeah, I like that. So it's almost like a baseball analogy would be the batter's box. You have a a guy standing in the batter's box who's kind of an elder church planter in waiting. He's getting experience. He's getting exposure. He's spending time with the pastor. And then in the right time, he's kind of launching out from there with the affirmation, prayer, support, encouragement of the of the church. It's good. I want to shift to some lightning round questions, you know, just kind of some quick hitter type questions. First one's a fill in the blank. The most difficult aspect of planting a new church is blank. Patience. Got to be patience. Maybe just because I have so little. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Patience in in, in which way? Well, it's just not every church planner has the same demeanor and makeup, but, but there's probably some similarity to a lot of church planners in being, let's get this done. Let's do this, you know, action oriented. And when you plant a church, the needs are everywhere. Like what doesn't need improving? Everything is just, there are fires everywhere all the time. And that urgency can kill you, right? So you've just got to be able to go, no, we're not going to solve most of those problems right now. We're just, we're going to keep at it. And we're going to trust in the Lord's timing that Hmm. things are going to work out. But I find patience difficult. 
Yeah. You know, I want to ask one follow-up question related to that because I, I didn't really ask this earlier, but you've planted now several churches. You talked about getting to the field and, and even wrestling through what, what what is a church. When do you think you realize that, yeah, God has gifted you, wants to use you to plant churches? It was just what had to be done, right? But this is like most young and dumb guys, which I was young and dumb when I headed to the field. I just was not thinking three steps down the road. It was just go share the gospel, disciple people. Ah, we need a church. Okay. I should have thought this through in advance. Yeah. No, that's good. The the Lord uses it. That's good. Another fill in the blank. In your opinion, the most encouraging aspect of planting a new church is blank. It requires all of you. I'm stealing that a bit from Steve Young, quarterback for the 49ers. He was, he was talking about why people like Tom Brady can't retire. They keep coming back, but it's because being a quarterback requires all of you. I don't know that being in the situation where there are so many needs and you feel your own inadequacy so acutely makes you throw yourself on the mercy of God in prayer. I mean, it just your prayer life is alive. You're leaning towards conversions. You're really wanting to celebrate those, not take those for granted. You remember every baptism just so deeply. So I I just, I don't know, is that the most encouraging thing? I probably should say the glory of God or something, but I I think my (laughs) answer is it, it requires all of you. Yeah, that's good. Mark, what do you think is missing in many cross-cultural church planning efforts today? Any, well, any what we talked about at the beginning, yeah, yeah, yeah. What we talked about at the beginning, like what is a church? So you asked, what is a church? How did I make it to the field without anybody asking me if I knew what a church was? I have a Mark Dever, pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church, one of our main supporting churches. He um, affectionately calls me the most undiscerning full-time Christian worker he had ever met. And that was me as I headed to the field. But as I look back on it, I go, man. Some of those churches that, and and Capitol Hill wasn't one of them early on, they could have done so much more to kindly and graciously help me see some of the gaps. But anyway, as I think about missionaries that are on the field that cannot answer a question, what is a church? They're not meaningfully a part of any church. It's not helpful. I mean, I run into so many guys who are training other pastors to preach. Like they go and give the preaching seminar. I ask them to come preach at my church and I discover they they can't preach. They don't know how to preach. They just give preaching seminars. But I, I understand why, right? Because they're a consultant who may not, may or may not have ever actually done it themselves. So I just, if we say to missionaries, look, you've got to be involved in a local church where you are even if it's four people, eight people, whatever it is, you can't commend what you don't cherish and you can't usefully disciple others in what you're not living out yourself. Mm. Mark, how important is theological education, theological training? How important is that for new pastors, church planters? Well, it's super useful. I mean, it speeds so many things up. But I don't want to make it something that is an absolute necessity before you start. Maybe that's partly my own story. I mean, I got training at the point where it was acutely felt as a need. And that was great for me, although it would have been useful at the start, right? It's super useful. I just think that sending churches and agencies have to be flexible oftentimes in whether or not we're going to require three years before you head to the field or we're going to try to work it in at 
most of the guys that I've discipled overseas, I get them studying from a distance, thankful for programs at, at Southern and other seminaries that allow them to start doing it. They almost all end up coming back for a year or two to finish or something like that. But flexibility is helpful there. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Mark, you've been incredibly generous with your time. I know you're on, you're on the other side of the world. It's it's evening for you. Last question. What is one word of encouragement you would share with a cross-cultural church planter today? Oh man, it's just, it's so worth it. What you're doing, you're going to be tempted to give up. Don't give up. We, we need more of you, not less. So stay in it. Even if it's slow, hard work, it's what we need. People who can go out and break new ground and establish churches where, where the church is not. So, so don't give up. Mm. Mark, thank you so much for your time, for the conversation today. To hear more conversations like this, please subscribe to this podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening to this episode. Thank you for joining us on Amazon to the Himalayas. This podcast is brought to you by the Billy Graham School at Southern Seminary. Please visit our website, www.sbts.edu bgs, where you can subscribe to the show and learn more. Also, if you have found these conversations helpful, please leave us a comment or a review and encourage your friends to subscribe to the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for more. This is Amazon to the Himalayas podcast.